Mary Mead and Blessed Be. Welcome one and all to the Spiral Dance. Mary Mead, and welcome to this week's edition of the Spiral Dance. I'm Hawthorne, and I'm very happy you could join me. We're just listening to Kate Bush doing Under Ice. Well, this week, we're going to look ahead to the new year, which is very much under ice at this point. The January moon is known as the wolf moon. It's a time when shedding and cleansing takes place. The old year is released, and the energy of the new year is just beginning. This is a time for letting go from the past and starting anew. I'm going to listen to a talk on transcending your early limitations. So let's work together to make this New Year's transition work so that we could transcend towards our goals for 2024. And we're going to have the spiral dance spell that we towards the end of the show that is all coming up for you. Here's music right now from Dead Can Dance with The Arrival and The Reunion here on the Spiral Dance with Hawthorne. Thank you. 
transition and transcend. Whatever new life there is, begin, whether from death or divorce, sickness or sorrow, change, yet stay on course today, rise to tomorrow. So transition and transcend. Transition and transcend. A slow start, it's not the end. You may lose some family, a friend or fortune, a job or a journey, or a just right opportune. Just transition and transcend. Transition and transcend. Move just like the wind. Either climb up or go around earthquake aches or shaky ground. Tears that flood and threaten to down forest fire rages. Burn up, then down. So transition and transcend. Transition and transcend. Life is hard. I won't pretend the push and the pull to begin the power and the will to win again, again, and again. And at each place, pray, amen, and transition and transcend. That was a poem called Transition and Transcend. It's by Moon B. Kennedy. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, Nothing is secure but life, transition, and the energizing spirit. January 1st has marked the first day of the year since the Julian calendar was introduced in the Roman Empire. New Year's represents a fresh start of a new year after a period of remembrance of the passing year. The Romans originally dedicated New Year's Day to Janus, the god of gates, doors, and beginnings, for whom January was named. Later, the Gregorian calendar marked the New Year's Day with the 1st of January. Today, with most countries now using the Gregorian calendar as their de facto calendar, New Year's Day is probably the world's most celebrated public holidays. Ancient Mesopotamia created the concept of a New Year celebration around the year 2000 BCE. Historians aren't sure at what point in the year they marked New Year's, but around the ancient world, dates in March coincided with the spring equinox were used as a logical point to renew the year. Among the 7th century pagans of Flanders and the Netherlands, it was the custom to exchange gifts at the New Year. They exchanged little figurines called vetulas. The vetulas were representations of an old woman or a little deer or a miniature set of tables and chairs for the house elf. In Scotland, New Year's marks the traditional celebration of the Hogmanay. Hogmanay actually marks the last day of the year, but it continues into the 1st of January, or in some cases until the 2nd. There are many customs, both national and local, associated with Hogmanay. The most widespread national custom is the practice of first footing, which starts immediately after midnight. Now this involves being the first person to cross the threshold of a friend or a neighbor, and it often involves the giving of symbolic gifts like salt, coal, shortbread, whiskey, a black bun, which is a rich fruitcake, intended to bring different kinds of luck to the household. Food and drink are then given to the guests. Now this may go on throughout the early hours of the morning and well into the next day. The first foot is supposed to set the luck for the rest of the year. Traditionally, tall dark men are preferred as the first foot. In Wales, calending. Calending means New Year's celebration or gifts. Although it literally translates to the first day of the month, deriving from the Latin word calends. 
The first English word calendar also has its root in this word. The tradition of giving gifts and money on New Year's Day is an ancient custom that survives even in modern day Wales, though nowadays it's now customary to give bread and cheese. Many people give gifts on New Year's morning, with children having skewered apples stuck with raisins and fruit. In some parts of Wales, people must visit all of their relatives by midday to collect their calendar, and celebrations and traditions can vary from area to area. In France, some regard the weather as the predictor of that year. Wind blowing east, fruit will yield. Wind blowing west, fish and livestock will be bumper. Wind blowing south, there will be good weather all year round. And wind blowing north, there will be crop failure. It's common for people to toast the new year. In Spain, it's customary to have 12 grapes at hand when the clock strikes 12 midnight. One grape is eaten on each stroke. If, the, if all the grapes are eaten within the period of the strikes, it means good luck in the new year. In Greece and Cyprus, families and relatives switch off the lights at midnight. Then they celebrate by cutting the vasilopita, which is a basil's pie, which usually contains one coin or an equivalent. Whoever wins expects luck for the whole year. After the pie, traditionally game of cards called trientina follows that. Traditionally, the Roman calendar consisted of 10 months, totaling 304 days, winter being considered a month less period. Around the year 713 BC, the semi-mythical successor of Romulus, King Numa Pompilius, is supposed to have added the months of January and February, allowing the calendar to equal a standard lunar year. Although March was originally the first month in the old Roman calendar, January became the first month of the calendar year under either Numa or the Decembers around 450 BC, and some Roman writers differ about that. According to Theodore Memson in his The History of Rome, Volume 4, The Revolution, the 1st of January became the first day of the year in the year 600 of the Roman calendar, or 153 BC. It's connected to disasters in the Lusitanian War, a Lusitanian chief called Pinicus invaded the Roman territory, defeated two Roman governors, and slew their troops. The Romans resolved to send a consul to Spain, and in order to accelerate the dispatch of aid, quoting, they even made the new consuls enter on office two months and a half before the legal time, which would have been the 15th of March. Historical names for January include its original designation, Januarius. The Saxons call this month the Wolf Month. In Finnish, the month Tamaku means the heart of the winter, and the name literally means Oak Moon.
the Roman god Janus is the god of gates and doors, beginnings and endings, and hence is represented with a double-faced head, each looking in opposite directions. He was worshipped at the beginning of the harvest time, planting, marriage, birth, and other types of beginnings, especially the beginnings of important events in a person's life. Janus also represents the transition between primitive life and civilization, between the countryside and the city, between peace and war, and the growing up of young people. The oldest list of gods found from ancient Rome usually began with his name. He was surnamed Divom Deus, very ancient form of Latin meaning the God's God, and his portrait can be found on the oldest Roman coins. Janus was therefore a very old and a very important God. Before every sacrifice he was invoked and he received a libation. One tradition states that he came from Thessaly and that he was welcomed by Micrulius Camus in Latium where he shared the kingdom. When Camus died, Janus became the sole ruler of Latium. He sheltered Saturn when he was fleeing from Jupiter. Janus, as the first king of Latium, brought the people a time of peace and welfare, the Golden Age. He introduced money, cultivation of the fields, and laws. After his death, he was deified and became the protector of Rome. When Romulus and his associates stole the Sabine virgins, the Sabines attacked the city. The daughter of one of the guards of the Capitolian Hill betrayed her fellow countrymen and guided the enemy into the city. They attempted to climb the hill, but Janus made a hot spring erupt from the ground and the would-be attackers fled from the city. Ever since, the gates of his temples were kept open in times of war so that God could be ready to intervene when necessary. In times of peace, the gates were closed. His most famous sanctuary was a portal on the Forum Romanum through which the Roman legionnaires went to war. He also had a temple on the Forum Auditorium, and in the first century, another temple was built on the Forum of Nerva. This one had four portals called Janus Quadrophons. When Rome became a republic, only one of the royal functions survived, namely that of the Rex Sacrorum or Rex Sacrificulus. His priests often sacrificed to him. The temple of Janus in Rome was situated in a street named Argolatum, an important road that connected the Roman Forum and the residential areas of the northeast. The cult statue was between the two gates to the temple. The gates were called the gates of war, for the temple was always, sta always stands open in times of war, but it's closed when peace has come. Of course, the gates were rarely closed. <laughs> As the empire increased in size, it also always engaged in some war. You would know all about that. However, it was said that in the time of Augustus, the gates was closed after he had overthrown Mark Antony, and before that, when Marcus Attilius and Titus Manlius were consuls, it was closed a short time. Then war broke out again and it was opened. Plutarch tells that during the reign of the legendary King Numa, the gates were always closed, and that Numa had invented the rule that they were to remain open in wartime. The Emperor Augustus tells in his autobiography, it was the will of our ancestors that the gateway of Janus should be shut when victories had secured the peace by land and sea throughout the whole empire of the Roman people. From the foundation of the city to my birth, 
tradition records that it was shut only twice by Numa and Manlius, but while I was the leading citizen of the Senate, resolved that it should be shut on three occasions. The gate was locked for the first time on January the 29th, after Augustus had defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and again in the autumn of 25 BC, when the Spanish Cantabrians were subdued. The poet Virgil wrote in the Aeneid, the simple fact that every council left the Roman Forum through the Arcoletum, Rome's most important road, it's blown up to an ancient ritual. Quoting Virgil, There was a sacred custom in Latium, land of the West, which the Alban cities continuously observed, and Rome, supreme in all the world, observes today, were Romans first stir Mars to engage battle. Alike if they prepare to launch war's miseries with might, or to journey to India in the track of dawn and to bid the, the Parthians hand our standards back. There are twin gates of war, for by that name men call them, and they are hallowed by men's awe and the dread presence of heartless Mars moving from that threshold is their guard. When the senators have irrevocably decided for battle, the consul himself, a figure conspicuous in Quarine Toga of Staten and Gabine Cincher, unbolts those gates and their hinge posts groan. It is he who calls the fighting forth. From the rest of their manhood follows, and the bronze horns in horses ascend their breath." Unquote. In another passage, Virgil explains the meaning of the ritual closing of the gates. The terrible iron constricted gates of war shall shut, and safe within them shall stay the godless and ghastly lust of blood, propped on his pitiless piled armor and still roaring from the gory mouth, but held fast by a hundred chairs of bronze knotted behind his back. Well, in other words, the gates were closed to keep war in. However, Virgil's contemporaries and colleagues, Ovid and Horace, state exactly the opposite. It is peace that is kept inside the Temple of Janus. In spite, or rather because of this ambiguity, the closing of the gates of war was a powerful symbol. The threshold symbolizes the passage from the profane to the sacred, from outer profane space to inner sacred space, entering a new world. As a boundary symbol, it's the line of meeting of the natural and the supernatural. Guardians of the threshold who must be overcome before the sacred realm can be entered are dragons, serpents, monsters, dogs, scorpion men, lions, etc. In the psychic and spiritual realm, guardians prevent a man from going too far or too fast and meeting or seeing more than he is capable of bearing in occult or esoteric knowledge. Now here are some quotes about transition. Isaac Asimov said, Life is pleasant, death is peaceful. It's the transition that's troublesome. 
And from the Tom Stoppard play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, quote, look on every exit as being an entrance somewhere else. Jeanette Winterson wrote in her book, The World and Other Places, Stories, quoting, in the space between chaos and shape, there was another chance. Ishmael Ba wrote in Radiance of Tomorrow, we must live in the radiance of tomorrow, as our ancestors have suggested in their tales. For what is yet to come tomorrow has possibilities, and we must think of it the simplest glimpse of that possibility of goodness. That will be our strength. That has always been our strength. And from Elizabeth Lesser, from her book Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow, how strange that the nature of life is change, yet the nature of human beings is to resist change. And how, how ironic that the difficult times we fear might ruin us are the very ones that can break us open and help us blossom into who we were meant to be. Here's an interesting idea from Shannon L. Alder. Quoting, some people can't be in your life because they don't have the power to help you improve it. That doesn't mean that you don't wish them well. It just means that you are on chapter 10 of your life when they are on, say, chapter 5. Maybe it's just enough to meet at the crossroads in life and agree to take separate paths. Then with a Cheshire grin, you both look back and shout, beat you to the top of the mountain, followed by the funnest sprint in both of your lives. And to you, I wish Happy New Year. Internally, transcendence is possible. And some people had to encounter the most severe limitations on their lives through physical disability, complete loss, had to encounter whatever, whatever area, severe limitations on their lives, prison cell, to go to, to realize that there is a freedom within where limitations can be transcended through non-judgment of the present moment, non-reaction, no, reaction is unconscious, response, yes, reaction is against. Through bringing that openness, the yes to what is, the internal yes, not necessarily a verbal yes, but as in the inner attitude of being one with the present moment, that, that opens up in you that which is beyond form, and there you transcend limitations, and there's freedom.
And that's what being dead means. Dead to the world. It's not a negative thing at all. You are much more alive when you're dead. <laughs> much more alive. And you are much more powerful when you are a valley than when you are a mountain. The mountain aspect of you, by mountain we mean the form identity, of course you have that for a while anyway, you don't have to worry about that. Yes, you still you have a form, okay. Be the valley while you are walking around as if you were a mountain. And that's peace. That's inner peace. You walk around this world which is not peaceful as an energy field of peace. Not the peace that has abdicated consciousness and said, okay, I'm going to go back into semi-consciousness. desensitize myself and go back into the vegetative realm. And be peaceful in that way. There could be an escape also from the world of form. I'm at peace now. Peace. That's the state you can also encounter just before you go to sleep, in that last few moments. Ah. Something pulls you, something very sweet that we call tiredness. Something very, tiredness is something, we think we know what it is because we have a name for it and it's so common. But there's something very, what is that when you say I'm tired? It means you, there's a pull, you're being pulled from within. That pull gets stronger and stronger. And that pull can get so strong that you'd rather give up your life than resist it. People who get lost in the wilderness, they will lie down in the snow knowing that they're never going to wake up again, but the pull becomes so strong. Now, in conventional times we say they're so tired they have to go to sleep. But what is tiredness? It becomes so sweet wanting to go there. You can tonight have a look, have a feel, to stay conscious from, and, and feel the, the pull, how sweet it is to go into sleep. Just as you enter sleep, feel the sweetness of sleep. And there are no problems there. Now, am I saying that's where we are going? No. But it's one way, you're going below thought to the one. Our destiny is to go beyond thought and then reach the one consciously. Reach it, be realizing that you are it, but consciously. So we, the sweetness of being is there when you, when you, when you go into sleep. It's, it's so beautiful. You, you, after a long day, you lie in bed 
I go, ah. Oh. Normal problems. You're going, you're going below thinking into that beautiful sweetness of being. And here the evolutionary impulse of the universe is to encounter that consciously, to be one with that consciously. Which is the dead state. Because when you're going to dreamless sleep, you're virtually dead. You don't exist as a person anymore. Temporarily you unite with the source and then you come out again. But it is our destiny to consciously unite with the source. Don't ask me why, I know that it is. It's our destiny to consciously unite with the source of who we are. And you can only do that if you go around as if you were already dead. <laughs> because dead means the, it's the formless. No more. Death, death is just the, the dissolution of forms, but death ultimately is already life. So that's why we have the old saying, the ancient saying, die before you die. Die before you die. Or we could, in some traditions, say, find death before death finds you. Because death will find you. <laughs> and if you find death before death finds you, in Christian terms, Jesus' teaching, you find what he called eternal life. Now eternal, of course, means not it goes on and on. It means timeless. If eternal meant it goes on and on, it would become very boring. It would become a limitation. <laughs> In heaven you would be, after a while you say, I don't want to be in heaven anymore, maybe there's more going on in hell. <laughs> there was a song somebody played to me some years ago by a, a, a music uh, band, I don't remember the name, but the title of the song was Heaven, the place where nothing ever happens. <laughs> So find death before death finds you. Beautiful. Eternal life, of course, the teaching of Jesus has been misunderstood. First of all, they interpret it as being something that you're going to find it in the future, where after you die, you find eternal life. And then eternal was interpreted as everlasting. There are even some translations of the Bible where it's called everlasting, but it's not right. It's eternal means timeless. So I would substitute then, I would neither call it everlasting nor would I call it eternal anymore. I would just call it timeless. The timeless life that you are. That's hiding in death. <laughs> and so, as we realize that, more and more humans realize that dimension that is a new evolutionary level 
that humanity reaches, consciously uniting with that, that means you save the world. The world becomes saved, the, the world out there. And that's an, it's an added bonus. Oh, that's good. And if it were, were to collapse, ultimately, there's no death. The, only the forms dissolve. That is the, the deepest, that's not conventional reality, of course. In conventional reality, death is everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> So, we've had the bad news, which is the everybody's going to be wiped out of the planet, okay, which ultimately is not the bad news at all, it's the good news if you realize that how so fleeting it is that why attach yourself to form as if that were all there is. The little, the little problems of my life obscuring the divinity of who you are, the depths of who you are. All the little stuff of your life, allowing it to completely obscure who you are, how, how vast you are as an expression of the whole as an expression of the timeless life, of consciousness itself, how vast you are, and you're allowing little marital troubles and stock market concerns to obscure that. Ultimately, you're allowing the mind, because that's what it is. The stock market isn't the problem. Your thoughts about the stock market are the problem. And the identification of millions of people with their minds have actually created the stock market. But that's another matter. <laughs> so not, it's not the, the problem is never out there. The problem is always your, your thoughts about it. Out there you may have a situation. You look at it, become still for a moment, and you act, action arises out of intelligent action, out of the stillness, that little space of no thought. Alert stillness, you look, okay, and then action, if possible. If no action is possible, you look and you are, that's what is. That's power. You're in touch with power. Not your power, the power. So we do not need to fear the end of the world, nor do we need to long for the end of the world out there. Get to the end of the world in you. The end of the world is the end of reliance and identification with 
the mind. Because the mind is the world. We don't, you don't even know whether there is a world out there. Because you can only experience it through your mind. The mind is the world. Attachment to the world really is attachment to your mind, to your thoughts. And so, that is the transition from one state of consciousness to a higher state of consciousness. The relinquishment of that attachment to every thought that arises. Is there a world out there? Or is it just our mind? Maybe it comes to the same thing. Waking up means stepping out of identification with thought. And that means death. So simple. It's death. When you don't believe in thoughts anymore, suddenly a spaciousness arises, an awareness arises, which from the point of view of thought is called death. Thought calls it death. we could call the good news. This is one, sometimes the Gospels in the New Testament are called the good news. And of course, basically, that's what it is. The basic message was already there. It became distorted and obscured and misinterpreted. That's all very well, but it's there. All the ancient teachings point to it. And now it comes in a new form, because the expression of it is form. That which it points to is formless, and that out of which the expression of it arises is the formless also. So what is happening here is happening because the universe wants it to happen. Life wants this to happen, this awakening. The awakening out of the dream of form, ultimately. Consciousness is awakening. It's a huge, vast thing. I do not fully understand it. Nobody can. But you can be a conscious expression of that movement. And it frees your life from problems. Oh, that's a little bonus. <laughs> Oh, and it gives you inner peace. Oh, that's another bonus. It makes you a loving being. Oh, that's a bonus. 
you no longer contribute to spreading unhappiness in the world. Oh, that's good. And you actually, you change the world by being an expression of that shift in consciousness, by allowing it to happen through you, you change the world, because you are all that. And a few more doing, a few more are not doing it, but realizing it, and the world changes. Now, whether in the meantime, whether the world as we know it now has to collapse substantially first before the new change can manifest and express itself also through new forms remains to be seen. It perhaps depends on how quickly the new consciousness arises in humans. And if, the, if forms need to collapse that were created by the old consciousness, from Soviet Communism to Wall Street, just to take two extremes, but basically the same things, to the political system, the economic system, social, the institutions, and so on. Are they going to survive? Some may survive, many probably will not. Is that something to be feared? No. It's enormous change coming in, internally and externally. They go together.
Okay, we just heard from Telling Point with Take the Path, and we heard a spoken word piece from Eckhart Tolle called Transcending Limitations to Awaken. And we heard some music from Orcus doing He Walks in Winter, and we started this week's set off with Dead Can Dance doing The Arrival and The Reunion. Now it's time for this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week, and this week's Spiral Dance Spell of the Week is for Sunday, the 31st of December, the very last day of the year. And this is called Bring in the New Spell. So invite your family and your close friends for a late night feast on this night. Have everybody bring a worn item of clothing and make a scarecrow by scruffing the the clothing with pieces of paper on which each person at the party has written old habits or sad memories that they wish to rid themselves of. Carry the scarecrow out of doors and burn it. Visualize the old habits and the memories going up in smoke. At the stroke of midnight, eat 12 grapes to symbolize the 12 months of the new year, then make 12 wishes. When this is done, the youngest person at the party should stand at the front door and ring in the new year, and the oldest person in the group should stand at the back door and ring out the old year. Okay, that was offered by Lily Gardner Boots. It appeared in the 2006 Witches Spell Day Almanac. That's an old year. Um, So give that spell a try, and again, Happy New Year to you. Dance with Hawthorne. Here's Brick Johnch with the January Man.
of a January man. He walks the road in woolen coat and boots of leather. The February man still shakes the snow from off his hair and blows his hand. Oh, the man of March, he sees the spring and he wonders what the year will bring and hopes for better weather. The man goes down to watch the birds come in to share the summer. The man of my stands very still, watching the children dance away the die. In June, the man inside the man is young and wants to lend a hand and grins at each new The man in cotton shirt, he sits and thinks on being idle. The August man in thousands takes the road to watch the sea and find the sun. September man is standing near to saddle up and leave the year, and autumn is his doing the January man and uh, that's going to do for me for this week I hope that you're all set to start the new year all over again I'll be back again next week with a brand new show until then Merry, merry part till merry meet again blessed be